I am so happy you guys joined me because this is an incredible interview, not because of me, but because my guest is insane. So this is Dr. Stacy Sims. I found her through her book, Roar. And I mean, she's just in, incredibly smart and I love it. She, Her tagline is, we are not small men. So basically as she was studying for her PhD and as she was researching the body, all these studies that she was finding as she was working with professional athletes and as herself as an athlete, nothing was being researched on women. And even, God, she even talks about this in the interview, but even the genetic testing, the the things like 23andMe that I'm getting my results for, all of that is based on like white European men. And it's just so fascinating. Um, one that that's the case, but two that there's, I mean, she's just such a powerhouse. She decided to do it herself. And this interview is all about the differences between men and women and what, what that means for training and what that means in so many different ways. But I wanted, I, I was legit nervous to interview her and I wanted to read her bio before she gets talking because you guys just need to know how awesome she is. Um, recently named by Outside Magazine as one of top 40 women who have advanced and challenged the outdoor world through their leadership, innovation, and athletic feats. Dr. Stacy Sims is an exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist. Um, she works in New Zealand right now, but her research mainly is involving understanding sex differences of heat and altitude stress, recovery, genetics, and nutrition to moderate adaptive responses for performance. And I am just so thrilled she's on the show with me, and I know you guys are going to love it. Uh, I hope you learn a lot. This is definitely a be nerdy, but it could also be be strong and be alpha. It could be all of it. This, this lady is where it's at. Make sure you find her and follow her and share the episode if you like it. Next challenge for me, some news for me, July 10th, my next 21 day MFIT challenge powered by Verizon. And I will be in San Jose coming up end of July, um, for a fit expo. So if you're in California, make sure you come see me there and that's it. Enjoy the episode. <laughs> MFIT radio. All right, Stacy Sims, I am just so thrilled to have you on MFIT Radio because you are just a powerhouse and you represent everything that, like, I think the best way to start this is we are not small men. <laughs> we are great. not small men. Yes. That is great. And I just, you know, I know that your own story of being an athlete and, you know, having kind of just hitting dead end after dead end of figuring out what works for women because it's, it's different than men led you to your career. And I think you've just done an incredible job, not allowing, you know, not allowing the work you were in to put you in a box and you created your own box and it's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For some reason people keep saying, Oh, it's so innovative. And I'm like, well, actually, no, I'm just trying to get questions answered from myself and my daughter. Yeah. So you are a mom and you're in California. Um, I moved from California and I now reside in New Zealand. Oh my gosh. I want to go to New Zealand so badly. Do you love it there? It's, it's okay. okay. It's not without its challenges. I guess that's a good way to put it. Cause I think I see, you know, it sounds so glamorous, but I just think maybe it's because I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. And so I've always been obsessed with New Zealand and it's just like, 
kind of countryside glamour that I think it has and all the adventure. But when you live there, it's totally different. It is. It's just like any other life. But if you're such a Lord of the Rings fan, you definitely have to come visit because <laughs> my brother-in-law is the um, lead set builder. So he built all of Hobbiton and um, he travels um, with the movie premieres and builds the sets for the movie premieres and everything. So oh there's quite a tidy little um, entourage of Hobbiton. My husband's actually from Matamata, which is Hobbiton. That is amazing. What a crazy world. <laughs> That'd be, a, that'd be such a fun <laughs> job to make hobbit holes. <laughs> yeah, I make hobbit holes for uh, now they've turned it into um, like a B and B, so you can rent out the hobbit hole for the night. Oh my god, that might be on my bucket list right now. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to jump in. I know, like you know, first off, your book Roar has been so fun to read because you just have so much little nerdy information that just like you subtly put it in and it's just, it's been so awesome. I have it underlined and highlighted and I just wrote a ton of notes and I think I just kind of want to have a conversation about, you know, obviously why, what you have found in your research and at Stanford when you were looking like, why are we not just small men? Like how does hormones impact our training and our recovery because it does so in so many different ways, but also um, just really to dig into what, one thing that I really want to talk about is just especially birth control. I know a lot of my clients have that conversation mm-hmm. with me, and it's something that I think you would just be such a great person to kind of open that conversation with. So uh, thrilled to have you on, and I think everyone should get the book Roar if you guys haven't already. I got it off Amazon, but I think you sell it at maybe Barnes & Noble as well, I saw. So, um, yep. Yeah, so definitely, definitely check out the book. I I think the first thing is for, were you surprised when you were researching with, you know, kind of what you found? Maybe you weren't surprised, but how different physiologically men were from women and why nobody was talking about it? Um, I wasn't so surprised because, I mean, like, I started having questions when I was, 18, 19, new to university and just inquisitive and asking, well, here's all this data and stuff that I'm supposed to be learning, but it seems to be like the standard quo is for what 150 pound, 18 to 22 year old college age male. And when you start asking questions outside of that box, people don't have the answers. When we start digging into the research, there's not a lot of research there and it's still not very deep. So there's still a lot of work to do. And I mean, I've been doing this for, gosh, 20-some-odd years. That actually tells you how old I am. (laughs) Um, And it's just now, I think in the past two or three years, that people are really starting to question and ask why. And I think it stems more from the medical community going, well, here's all this chemotherapy research, and the only outcomes that are really positive is on breast cancer because that was specifically done on women. So then they start looking at other chemotherapy um, treatments and regimes and they're like, wait, no, this is good for a guy. Why isn't it working so well for a woman? So then they're starting to do a bit digging. Then when I was at Stanford working with Marcia Stefanik with the Women's Health Initiative, she started really getting into sex differences as well. And it's very apparent when you start looking that, you know, you're born, you have XY and XX and some variants in between. But if sex differences start at birth and you talk about developmental and how um, hormones change the onset of puberty and how women grow boobs and put body fat on differently and men with testosterone lean up and get stronger, 
well, okay, well, those are apparent differences of puberty, but then you start looking at it, how it affects mood, how it affects body composition. And so it just kind of simulates out that it definitely has to have some kind of impact on more than just development. Yeah, I love, and it's so cool because I think we are finally having that conversation a little bit more post, you know, with my, my clients now. And I, you know, I didn't, we don't have to jump into the birth control right away, but it's just like, why are things not changing for me? And what have I, I, just, I don't know, it just pisses me off how, how it's so accepted for women to just kind of, you know, be monitored and take a certain, a pretty powerful pill that's changing the way our body is meant to work. And even though I understand there's a place for it, it's just so frustrating. And I think more and more people are asking that question of how is my body supposed to work? Why is it not working the way it should? And most likely because we're kind of following this men protocol. Um, yeah. Which is great. Yeah. And if you could see me, you could see that I'm nodding in agreement. <laughs> yeah. I was doing the same for you. So yeah. it's great. Um, and there was a, when the seasonal season eight came out a few years ago, you know, where you take four months of pills without bleeding, they were interviewing people on the news. And it seemed like all the people that were being interviewed were either old women or men. I was like, well, how does that, how does your opinion have any impact on a premenopausal woman who's trying to make a choice for herself? Yeah. It just seemed very off kilter. And for me, being a scientist, knowing how exogenous hormones affect everything from general health practice to 11% decrease in your intensity ability and all those things is like, no, no, you guys don't have enough information to make a, a valid decision or, or a valid choice to, to take this and not have a period for four months. So it was very frustrating. Oh man. And it's actually, there's a really funny SNL spoof on that very release. If you Google it, it's actually kind of hilarious, but it's um, them talking about like, you know, I only have one period a year, but when I do, and then she just like murders everybody in her office. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to see that. Yes, yeah. you do. It's a really good one. Um, but it's true. And I, I kind of wanted to start with just giving people the general knowledge of what, you know, and everyone has a variance in cycles, but what a typical, you know, you talk a lot about in your book, high hormone days and low hormone days. And I wanted to just kind of get a baseline for people. Um, because honestly, like this is until a couple of years ago when I realized, okay, like I'm, I do not want to be on birth control. I was on it for way too long, but I definitely need to understand my cycle. I got the Kindara, um, which has been great. But before that, it was like, I was clueless about temperature mm -hmm. and the way that my body was during certain cycles and even understanding, you know, pre-period things. So I just would love to break down the, you know, the high hormone, low hormone days throughout someone's typical, you know, quote, quotation marks, 28 day cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So we think about, you know, like you say, textbook is 28 day cycle and female athletes have a bit of a variance in there, but we can talk about that later. So we think about day one is the onset of bleeding. The reason why your period starts is because you have a sudden drop in estrogen progesterone, which signals the body to slough the uterine lining, which causes bleeding. So you, with this drop in estrogen progesterone, you're in a low hormone phase from day one to about day 12 and day 12 is ovulation. And with ovulation, you have a surge of estrogen and FSH and LH. 
Um, we're more concerned about estrogen and how that affects us uh, from a training perspective. With that surge of estrogen around ovulation, people are a little bit more tired. They've lost their mojo. They feel a bit flat. They might have problems sleeping for about um, two nights because estrogen interferes a little bit with melatonin um, production. But from a um, like a training perspective, you're more predisposed to having ACL and other ligamental injuries because with that surge of estrogen, um, it just makes things a little bit more lax, so to speak. Yeah. And then after your ov ovulatory time, which is you know like day 12, day 13, estrogen kind of drops off. But at the same time, progesterone rises and estrogen starts to slowly rise. And when those two hormones are rising, we call that the luteal phase or the high hormone phase. And that's around the 10 days before your period starts again. So when we look at the physiology of a woman versus a man, it's those 10 days before your period starts with the elevation of estrogen progesterone where we are most different from men. And the issue with a lot of the scientific articles is that they don't study women in that phase because we are different from men. Mm. Um, so when we have the elevation in estrogen progesterone, our core temperature is up around 0.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, we have a drop in plasma volume or the watery part of our blood by 8%. Uh, we can't access carbohydrate very well because estrogen spares it. So we have a greater reliance on free fatty acids, which means it's harder to hit intensities than PRs. Um, progesterone is very catabolic, so we can't repair and recover very well unless we increase our um, branched-chain amino acid or total protein intake. So there's some timing around that. We have greater systemic inflammation because of prostaglandins that are released uh, during the high hormone phase. Um, see what else there's total body sodium losses because progesterone competes with a key hormone for retaining sodium so we're more predisposed to hyponatremia uh, and the bloating that people experience with PMS isn't from water retention it's from a water shift so counterintuitive taking a diuretic you should actually add salt to your diet to help with that fluid shift wow. and then when you get to that that time where it just peaks then the period is getting ready to start, then the estrogen progesterone drop off. And women either feel great the day before, the day of, or the day after their period starts because it depends on how long it takes for those hormones to drop. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's like, bam, you're ready to go. Your core temperature is down. You can access carbohydrate. You have greater mojo. Your mood's not affected. You sleep well. And you're like, yeah, yeah, ready, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You're happy again. <laughs> Um, I think it's really interesting with me because I, you know, a lot of these questions I have are going to be a little bit selfish because I mean, I just, my periods are about every six weeks and I, I really do have, I think I've always had a hard time with progesterone because I was on birth control for so long. So I really feel that shift. Um, I feel like I cannot get my, it's about 10 days of just feeling really, really moody because I feel mm -hmm. like my progesterone is trying to raise, rise up and it's not as much as it maybe should be or could if I had a little bit more. And I've definitely worked on getting it a little bit more natural, like not, not worked on it. But I think for me, just having the awareness that that's something I struggle with. And it's probably because I demand so much cortisol out of my body that I <laughs> am taking away from the progesterone. But 
It is true. It's like as soon as you start your period, everything kind of is like normal again, not just because you had a period, but because your body's like, oh my God, I can finally relax again. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I think it's really cool what you just said about the bloating. Um, Is it because the water isn't able to, it's not getting into the cells, so it's it's having a hard time with like, is that a sodium potassium pump thing? It's having a hard time getting into our cells? No. Uh, what happens is estrogen interferes or competes directly with a water channel in the kidney called aquaporin. And it increases the fluid retention. Okay. But at the same time with estrogen and progesterone, there's more um, permeability to the capillaries. So you lose water out of, out of your blood. And because you have this combination of losing water from the blood plus the signal for water retention, you end up with more water and other um, water compartments in the body. And that's why you feel bloated. That is so interesting. And I love what you, there was a line in the book about how progesterone does compete with um, aldosterone, what you were saying earlier. And Mm -hmm. I've, I've been looking a lot about with adrenal health and how everyone, you know, with aldosterone, if cortisol is lower, aldosterone is lower. So it's like even is it's like more exasperated. Like there are mm-hmm. all these symptoms when you add stress onto the body on top of what we're already going through, it it's even more so dramatic. And I think that that's a really, I, I didn't know that about progesterone and aldosterone. Yeah. And then when we have elevation of cortisol, progesterone and estrogen are both stolen to keep cortisol um, production elevated because they're all part of the same steroid aspect. So um, this is how you start to get menstrual irregularities and dysfunction and perturbations of of mood and that kind of stuff when estrogen and progesterone are being taken to keep elevation of cortisol. So you have this quagmire of the way estrogen and progesterone are decreased cortisol is increased and it still competes with different receptor sites. And so you, you get into quite a few different triads. And like we talked about the female triad being irregular menstrual cycle and bone health and that kind of stuff. But you also have a, a thyroid core temperature and cortisol triad. So when you have elevations of cortisol, it affects thyroid, thyroid function and your ability to thermoregulate. So there's a whole bunch of undercurrent things that happen when you start getting into this um, kind of hormone dysfunction. Yeah. And I love what you said in the, um, it was how there was, uh, you know, the female triad was just always like, you're exercising too much, but then they finally, um, the Olympic committee, I think you said, in I can't remember the year, but they finally are talking about how it's a little bit more of malnutrition and, um, under recovery. Is that what I, mm-hmm. I remember that correctly? Yeah. It's now termed relative energy deficiency in sport, red S. So they're taking into account, like, you might not necessarily be restricting your calories purposefully, but you're not consuming enough to support your training and your stress in your daily life. So it puts you in low energy availability. So this starts the same kind of um, dysfunction as if you had an anorexia or some other kind of energy deficiency. And then they're also looking at all the mental and sociocultural aspects that affect the way we train, the way we think, the way we interact, um, coaching cues, and how that also might affect the stress and the energy availability. Oh, man, that's fascinating. Mm. Holy cow. I think um, for you, what do you see as 
when you start seeing, cause I know there's some, um, there's some variance in, in menstrual, menstrual cycles, but do you, when do you see it as a problem or as, uh, too irregular, too infrequent or too, too frequent? Do you have a, your own guideline just based on your research where you feel like there's a shift where something is a little off or does that depend on the person? It kind of depends on the person because you have regular irregularity, I like to call it. You know, like like you, every six weeks or um, like I used to be every three months, but I knew it would come every three months. So it was irregular, but it was also regular in that irregularity. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of your, like your own pattern. Um, if you start having like shortened periods, um, and I use myself as examples, of course, so when I was racing at a, at a high level, all of a sudden I went from every three months having a period to once every 10 days with heavy bleeding. I was like, this is not right. What's going on? Ended up I had carcinoma in situ, so it's the beginning of cervical cancer. So that was like a note that something was wrong. Yeah. If you're having periods that are that short, then you definitely have to go in and check. Because, the, again, the regular aspect is the 28 to 32 days. And if, you know, you miss one, then that's, that's normal because everyone is a little bit irregular. But if you keep skipping them and you have this dead-end fatigue and you can't sleep, you can't recover, you're gaining um, body weight, and especially fat around the stomach, then you need to get checked. Got it. Um, I think I, one thing I really wanted to address with this is with um, with PCOS, with polycystic ovarian syndrome and how kind of blanket statement it, it is right now. And, you know, I don't really know if doctors really know what to do with it, but if you, if you had any, um, I, sorry, this is a big question, but I feel like, cause that's a, one of the signs of PCOS, just irregular periods. And so these people, mm-hmm. they have irregular periods, progesterone is pretty low, testosterone is pretty high. Uh, do you feel like the, with your first, step to that is I know you're a big exercise. I mean, would exercise be one of your first steps to helping with insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance, which is kind of the culprit of that PCOS? Yep. For okay. sure. Okay. For sure. Um, cause the other thing that estrogen does or not estrogen exercise does is it moderates your hormonal activity. Um, so the more you're training on a regular basis, um, the less, estrogen and progesterone and testosterone affect you because there's a signal to decrease those hormone releases because by the nature of exercising, you're using more fatty acids and more fatty tissues. So those extra hormones can't be stored. Mm. They're very fat soluble. So if there's not a signal to store it, then not as much is being produced. So exercise does help moderate that hormone release and, and the perturbations that happen. So if you're starting to you know, have the symptoms of PCOS or you have a you know, blood test or something that says you have elevated testosterone and, and um, an uh, irregular ratio of progesterone to estrogen and you aren't re- regularly exercising, then put that in because that helps significantly. Uh, and that's kind of actually something I wanted to address a little bit because this is where, um, you know, I think everyone is so bio-individual. So it's like, you've got to figure out what works for you. And I'm so frustrated sometimes with the end all be all. And as much as I love high fat, the higher fat diets for some people, especially men do really great on them. I, I do like that you address this and you say, you know, there's many times where 
people come to you and their husband's crushing this keto or high fat diet, but for them, the women themselves, they're, they're either gaining weight or they're not seeing results with it. And something that really stood out to me was that, um, it's the types of estrogen. So we have one estradiol. Is that how you say it? Estradiol? Emily? Um, estradiol. 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 Okay. So with estradiol, I thought this was really key because I think there's so many times where I think people get really stuck in trying to do what people, other people are doing and not really experimenting with their own body. But um, with estradiol, how it increases insulin sensitivity. So when you go higher fat, I know that you mentioned in your book that it actually lowers estradiol. And so I'm so curious about this paradigm of are, are these people cutting carbohydrates and increasing their insulin resistance or their likelihood for insulin resistance? And I just thought that was kind of a light bulb moment that I wanted to nerd out on with you a little bit, because I do see some people get great results with it. And I, you know, I am a believer. I think all of us know we eat too much sugar. We eat too many, um, refined carbohydrates, but there are definitely, there's a place for them. And if somebody isn't doing well with a higher fat diet, I think seeing how they do on a more carbohydrate or carbohydrate conscious diet could be a great place for them. And I, I like that you address that in your book. Yeah. So there's a, it's kind of a double fold. And one of the aspects I didn't talk about was the effect of chronic dehydration and how that also affects um, insulin, insulin resistance. But the first factor of, you know, like women trying to do the keto diets or to some extent a lower carbohydrate and not maintaining around 120, 130 grams of carb is then you do have this um, dysfunction of elevated cortisol and menstrual dysfunction, which promotes abdominal adiposity and um, can cause periods to stop. Because again, it goes back to like early ancestral days of when there was low food availability and low calorie, then the male of the species went out to fight to find the calories. And so they would lean up and get greater boosts of growth hormone and testosterone, but it was not advantageous for the woman to need calories or to reproduce. So she would end up storing more body fat and cease to have menstrual cycles so that she wouldn't be able to reproduce in times of low low calorie availability. So that's kind of why this is happening in women who are trying to cut carbs too low or have too high fat a diet. Mm -hmm. And then the combination of that as well is if you are not maintaining adequate hydration and you're chronically dehydrated, then it does cause a, a total body response to insulin, leptin, and ghrelin which affects your appetite, but also um, decreases insulin sensitivity and predisposes people to prediabetes or blood sugar control issues. Man, oh man. And I, I wanted to talk chronic dehydration because you are huge on, and you are, you work all the, I mean, is that, are you working with um, noon still? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And I, I would have, I would love to talk about that because I think we have such a misconception of what hydration means. And so um, I would love to know your thoughts on maybe not, you know, obviously in your book, you talk about high athletes and high performing athletes and hydrating during races and et cetera. But for just like the average person trying to get fit, what are your suggestions as far as um, 
helping them understand if they are actually hydrated. Because I think so many of us, you know, we drink the water, we're checking off the glasses, um, but we're not adding electrolytes or having any, having enough minerals to retain. And so I'd love to hear you Mm -hmm. talk about how can someone understand, even with their amount of water consumption, that maybe they still are dehydrated. Yeah. So the biggest thing, like I start a hydration talk and I always ask how many people walk around drinking water all day where they have a bottle with them and they're drinking or they're trying to get that eight to 10 glasses of water. And most often, I'd say seven eighths of the crowd's hand goes up. And I say, well, actually you end up peeing out more than you take in because you drink all this water and you pee, you drink and you pee, you drink and pee and you get in the cycle. And so you assume that you're hydrated, but in fact you're not. So what happens is you are not drinking um, water with a bit of sodium in it, then it causes a stretch response and your body's like, this is excess, excess fluid I need to get rid of. So you end up peeing a lot. And the other aspect is as soon as you put water on your tongue, you kill your thirst sensation. Mm-hmm. So if your body never really attunes itself to what it means to be thirsty, then you can never really tune in when you're exercising or other times when you're throughout the day not availability of water that you are in fact thirsty. So now people confuse thirst with hunger. So they're like three o'clock when they should be drinking like even green tea or something like that, that they're hungry. Um, So there's a, a big misconception of drinking water all day, hydrating when in fact it's not, and then not being in tune to what it actually means to be thirsty and confusing that with hunger. So what I tell people is like in 500 mils or 16 ounces of water, you put one sixteenth a teaspoon of just plain old iodized table salt. And I say iodized table salt because we are low in iodine for the most part in our diets because they become processed or we don't eat enough sea vegetables. And you need a little bit of iodine for thyroid function. If you don't want to use the iodized table salt, then any um, NACL will work. And with that little bit of salt, it's only about 250 milligrams, but you actually pull in that water. So you end up drinking less and staying hydrated. So you're not peeing all day, but then the afternoon, you don't feel hungry, you don't feel tired, you wake up in the morning and you don't feel undue fatigue, your mouth isn't coated, you don't feel hungover. Um, so there's small little things throughout the day that you can do to get better sleep, better recovery and wake up not feeling like, oh, I need more sleep. Yeah. Because how many people do we know that do that? Oh, I just, I feel like it's such a good feeling when people finally realize they wake up and they feel like I don't have to hit snooze. That's just like... Mm. It's a great feeling to have. And I don't think many of us have that. No, I don't think so. That's a big, I like that. And the noon tablets, do you think, so I've been, um, obviously the noon active have been one of my favorites just because it's just like, I think with me, it's just, it's really interesting. You said the, it's good to know that you're thirsty because it's the same with hunger, right? With like our leptin and ghrelin, like. Do we even remember what it's like to be hungry sometimes? Um, we're so we're so good at taking care of ourselves. We're too good at it. And it's so good for our body to like understand those signals because we lose touch with it in so many different ways. Um, so I think with the noon tablets, like for the average person, like, is it true? Like when you pee and if, if there's no color, is that a sign of dehydration? If it's absolutely clear, that means that you are um, hydrated or overhydrated. Like you, if you have lots and lots of pee and it's clear, then that means, well, you're actually peeing out more than you take in. 
And a lot of people gulp a lot of fluid when they feel thirsty and they won't retain it. So it's small sips across the board. If it's really, really dark yellow and you're not using any kind of supplements, then you're really dehydrated. Yeah. And I find it really hard for people to understand that because, you know, they might have beets, they might have um, vitamin tablets, they might go back a lot of fluid. You know, so there's so many different metrics when someone's first starting to understand the cues in their body. So, I mean, I tell people to go to Amazon and buy your dipsticks so you can buy a, a – like a little small can of a hundred dipsticks and look at urine specific gravity. And if you are sitting on the left side of it, then you're hydrated and you're staying hydrated. If you're sitting on the far right in the dark um, orange and red colors, then you know that you're dehydrated. And people start to use that as an objective measurement to see where they are when they wake up, how they are in the afternoon, where they are before and after training, so they can tune in a little bit more to their own natural cues when they have a little bit of objective measurement. I love that. I think that's, it's like just biohacking the body, right? You know, be your, yeah. own, be your own guinea pig. What are, you, what are your favorite, just because before I jump to more questions, what are your favorite like self biohacks that you you do consistently i'm sure you have a lot but have there been ones that have like really stuck out or that you were really consistent with really just pea sticks yeah yeah because i travel so much and i don't know if it's jet lag or if i have allergies or if i'm getting sick so the pea sticks not only tell you hydration but they also um, tell you if you're catotic or not if you've recovered well or not if you're getting sick or not because it shows um, leukocytes it's just more of a tell-all rather than just you know one hydration measurement so i use it because i travel so much and i'm between hemispheres and different allergens and all that kind of stuff so it tends to be the standby that i've been using for about 10 years i love that i'm gonna link that uh i'm gonna have you send me what you order and get that linked into this podcast so that um does amazon prime work in new zealand <laughs> some do some do that would be the thing that I would I couldn't live in another country because Amazon Prime would not ship to me. <laughs> yeah, it. but New Zealand's figured out where they have a PO box in LA, and everyone who orders anything from New Zealand sets up their own PO box in LA, and the New Zealand Post picks it up and delivers it to you in New Zealand. Oh, look at that! I like mm -hmm. it. Hacking the system. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, let's talk about strength training and just kind of you know, your favorite, I mean, whether it's your favorite moves, I mean, I think most of my listeners know the benefits of it, but, um, I mean, I think it really is, it goes without saying that the number one way that you can just not only embrace your external strength, but also really internally and mentally like tap into a woman's capabilities is just to lift heavy shit. And so, um, I would love to hear kind of your favorite exercises that you do and that you like could not live without, um, whether that's strength training or even if you still are into the endurance, you know, if that's something necessary for you, I just kind of wanted to know what your, um, your exercise regime was. Yeah. So I'm kind of all over the show. <laughs> I should say when I travel. When I travel, I make a point to run and hit every CrossFit box I can. Yeah. If I can't find a box, then I use Traveling Wad or Wadwell. Um, so I do some kind of strength training and or running every day. Um, 
but when I'm at home, I have the availability of like sea swimming during lunchtime, riding mountain or road. Um, but if I'm not in the gym lifting heavy shit at least five times a week, mm-hmm. I feel awful. Right? Because <laughs> I've gotten in the habit uh. of feeling strong and powerful. And I have to be able to pick my daughter, who's now five years old, up and use her as a kettlebell because she loves it. So <laughs> I'm not progressing in my strength training and I can't pick her up. Small things, but it's fun. I love that. I have a question um, that's so awesome. You're a CrossFitter. I wanted to know your thoughts on the, and this is, I guess, the importance of recovery and we can get into post-workout recovery a little bit, I guess, but with cortisol and CrossFit, do you see, I mean, maybe it's just when you get to a certain level because I competed for a while. Um, I mean, it's just crazy how tapped my adrenals were and you know I felt like no matter how much I recovered I could it was there was not enough days off from actual CrossFit for some of the intensity that I was doing um and I really struggled with that I think I finally have found that balance where I know like if I didn't get enough sleep or if I uh didn't eat appropriately or whatever it is then I'm not forcing myself to the gym to go to that crazy place that we go to in CrossFit but I feel I feel like there's not enough people talking about the extreme, not just the physical demand, but like with cortisol and how CrossFit just sometimes demands it all the time and how important recovery is from that point of view, because the injury rate is going up, not just because of maybe the moves or the coaches, but because of the, the cortisol in our body. I just, I wanted to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. And, um, there is a bit, again, a bit of a difference between men and women with regards to recovery and how much intensity you can do. So men tend to be able to handle around three days of really intense activity without having too much of a break. Like their body can clear the cortisol, can recover, repair their different um, muscle enzymes that help with that recovery reparation process. But women tend to have a pattern where their body can handle two days and they need at least a day, maybe a day and a half off. And if you're not paying attention to that natural pattern, then you can get into a little bit of that overreaching um, where cortisol is elevated. You wake up feeling dead and fatigued. You don't have motivation. Um, even if you do sleep a lot and recovery becomes really important too, because most of what we know about post-exercise recovery in that 30 to 45 minute window, again, is based on men and women need more protein than men, in particular leucine. And it's not talked about. So, with women doing heavy strength training in conjunction with progesterone being catabolic, we need to really look at a 30 minute window of getting really good quality leucine in. And I know there's now this huge surge for a plant-based diet and I support it. I've been a vegetarian for more years than I've been a non-vegetarian in my life. Um, but the plant-based proteins don't have enough leucine to support what a woman needs. So they'll have to look to supplement with some branched chain amino acids or something like that. So when you understand these things, then you're able to get a better grasp on the cortisol. And then I work with some athletes who are still doing that, but then they have weeks where they're like, I'm so tired. I just can't do anything. So when you look to use something like licorice extract where that helps support cortisol metabolism and it's a timing thing where you want to take it either at 7 a.m. or 4 p.m. when you have your peaks of cortisol. So it takes a load off the adrenals and then you can, you know, not get into that downward spiral and keep progressing in your training. Yeah. And then, and I also think, um, 
I wanted to, with the leucine, you said, I, I was listening to a couple of your podcasts. You're on sometimes pre for brain focus. So like if it's not super mm-hmm. high intense, I love that you said, you know, maybe it's just going through drill work or maybe you're just kind of going through motions or like snatch drills or clean form and it's not heavyweight, like lift, lift, lift. It's just kind of skill. I love what you said about those branch chain amino acids really helping with mental fatigue. And yeah. And I think that also ties into possibly sugar cravings. So like when people are having a really hard hard time cutting out refined carbs and sugars, um, I found that branch chain amino acids have been really good. And I, I never connected the two that of course it would be good for, a workout and for focus similar to caffeine, maybe that kind of like dialed in feeling. Um, I wanted to know gram wise, do you do five gram? Is it five grams that you suggest? Yeah. Three to five grams. Okay. If you're doing it before and after training, then three on either side. Okay. Um, because yeah, like you said, it, the branching amino acids cross the blood brain barrier and affects some of the central nervous system fatigue, Uh, you know, so it enhances your central nervous system so you don't get central nervous system fatigue as quickly. So you can do more drills, you can do more um, focused work and more motor coordination without um, losing that focus and without getting too tired. I love that. That's so awesome. It's so easy to find an ad and um, I think it's just, I've been using it for, I think it's been about three weeks just kind of pre-workout and I really have enjoyed the way my brain is working when I'm in, <laughs> in a workout. <laughs> um, so what, what do you do for plant-based protein? Just out of curiosity. Well, um, I'm more, more real food oriented. Mm-hmm. Like the other aspect here in New Zealand is everything is really expensive. Mm-hmm. So like a kilo of protein powder might be 60 or $75. Uh, oh, wow. So you really need to look at real food, real food, using that. So um, like plant-based and stuff, it's using a lot of um, like a bronze bean flour, pea flour, that you can get the peas and, and dehydrate them, grind them up if you want to. But you can also go to some of the organic shops and they're already there. So you're kind of creating your own. But when you're looking at trying to use it as a post-exercise protein supplement, then I do branch out and buy some branched amino acids to add to those. Mm. Uh, and I um, got in the habit of making my own almond milk because it's so awesome. It's so much better than anything you can buy. I just made so mine I- last night. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so good and creamy. And yeah. then like, I'll take that and add some of the um, the different bean flowers and the branched amino acids. And sometimes you use it as a coffee creamer after, oh, <laughs> after exercise awesome. <laughs> um, to get a caffeine hit or something like that. So it's, it's being a prepared. And I, I know I have a distinct advantage over everybody because I know this stuff like the back of my hand. And I know what to look for. Um, and it's hard if you don't. Yeah, I admit that it's hard if you don't. So if you're looking for really good, clean vegan protein, there are a few out there. Um, and you want to look for like a pea, hemp, and quinoa combination. You also have to add some branched chain amino acids, but don't go for soy, soy base, anything like that. Yeah, I still can't believe people still eat soy. 
I know. I thought we were over and that. It's promoted so much in women, it drives me crazy. Oh, it drives me crazy too. It's so insane. And I'm you know, I'm like, is this just is it is it just that cheap and easy to make that, that it's like kinda like corn, you know? It's and or is there something more to it where there's just I don't know, I just it's so frustrating. Because it can't be any cheaper than quinoa to make, can it? Maybe it is. Yeah, it is. And it's owned by um, one of the massive agricultural companies. What is it? Monsanto? Yep. So Monsanto pushes it and pushes it and pushes it, just like the Corn Refiners Association pushes, pushes, pushes. And I get frustrated with the supplement and food industry where they're like, here's a woman's product, and you pick it up, and it's less calories and full of soy. I was like, that's shrink and pink, man. That is shrink and pink. Drives me crazy. Um, well, that's good. I'm, I think that that's awesome that I think for me, you know, I, I tend to, I wanted to talk a little bit about iron. Um, if I'm not very, very diligent about eating and I only grass fed beef, but I, I notice my iron levels are really ridiculously, they're just have always been pretty low. And so, um, I wanted to know, cause isn't it women are 20% more likely or something similar to, to men for iron deficiency and, I wanted to talk about how you see that with athletes and what your what your tips are to help with iron absorption um, from the food that we eat. Yeah, so um, I'm doing a little bit more research into the iron deficiency aspect because there's this tiny little enzyme called hepcidin. And hepcidin is a liver enzyme and it's often um, overexpressed after exercise because of the stress we put our gut under. And when it's overexpressed, it reduces our gut's ability to absorb iron. And when we are under high levels of stress with lots of cortisol and total body inflammation, hepcidin is upregulated and stays upregulated, which inhibits our body's ability to absorb iron through the gut. So if you look at how female athletes train, especially with lots of high intensity, or the flip side of that, working with iron distance athletes or ultra runners and that kind of stuff, um, having an eye on what's happening with hepcidin will help give insight into what is happening with iron stores and iron absorption. Mm. And it just got, I'd say about 18 months ago, got approved as a test for the FDA. So some insurance companies cover it and some don't. But if you're having significant issues with iron absorption and low iron and you're supplementing and it's not working, then I advise to get hepcidin checked. Because if it is that upregulation of hepcidin, then you have to do some serious like dietary changes to reduce that inflammation and reduce that cortisol so that your gut starts working appropriately to absorb it. Otherwise, it's like hitting a wall. You're not going to absorb it. <laughs> you have continuously low iron. Oh, that's fascinating. I've never heard of hepcidin before I read your book. And I wanted, I was like, it makes so much sense when the higher, you know, I always right. thought maybe it was like, a, this is where my nutritional therapy mind went. But like the higher stress you are, the less likely, you know, you're burning through zinc, you're less likely to absorb, you know, there's no stomach acid to break down food. And then it's harder to digest these, you know, hard to digest proteins. And is that why this is like less likely, but when hepcidin, that would be, I definitely should get that checked because I am curious. Um, and probably more so a lifestyle, you know, nutrition, of course, but like with lifestyle, having, 
helping people understand like what their workouts are doing. If it is too high in cortisol, if it's demanding too much cortisol for their maybe temporarily slowing things down, I guess maybe if that's necessary, I don't know how to do that very well, but <laughs> maybe yeah, I know it is hard, especially when we're in this day and age of like opportunity abound and you want to do everything. So this is where looking at licorice extract really helps because mm-hmm. if you're taking it at the peaks of cortisol, then it helps with that cortisol metabolism. So it's, I shouldn't say it's cheating the system, but it does help support your lifestyle when you can't make drastic changes. Do you use ashwagandha as well? I don't because I, I have some sensitivities to it. Oh, that's interesting. I never have met someone with a sensitivity to it. Uh, I, I, I wonder sometimes this is my thought on ashwagandha and you can totally correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I feel sometimes that people, they might go through higher cortisol stages, but if they're at the point where they're at like almost hypocortisol, wouldn't ashwagandha do them more harm than good? Yes. Okay. And that's, yeah. And then I'm like, why are these, these people don't really understand where their pattern is. And then they take these supplements and I feel like it's making them worse. Yeah. And I, I, I agree. And part of it is the Western philosophy of more is better Yeah. instead of the Chinese medicine and the natural naturopathic aspect of less is more. Hmm. So when you start having supplementation, people are like, well, if I'm in this state, I need to take more to get better faster. And they don't understand the idea of supplementation and less is more and use it in a cyclical and listen to your body. So there's an education factor that I think is lacking, um, which is, you know, why we do what we do is we help with the education and help people get a bit more control of what's going on. Ah, for sure. And for you, do you, I mean, as far as your favorite, you know, if a client comes to you, an athlete comes to you with lower iron outside of that testing, um, in the cortisol regulation, do you have, you know, kind of your favorite, especially as a vegetarian? Cause for me, I'm like, you know, grass fed beef, <laughs> put it on a plate. So I would love for me to expand my, my portfolio for my vegetarians. Yeah, so the the funny thing about being a vegetarian is that your body learns to pull more iron out of non-heme sources. Um, But as a vegetarian, you need to make sure that you get adequate intake of vitamin B12. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have the B12, then your body can't really use iron absorbed from food. Um, So if I have a vegetarian or a vegan athlete and they're on the low end of iron, then I have them take one slow iron release tablet once a week and boost their their intake of B12. Um, And so that tends to help. And if if it's not, then we try to go um, with lower cortisol and looking at what kinds of things we can do to reduce inflammation by using turmeric and ginger and other natural um, anti-inflammatory foods. And ironically, whey protein is a very powerful um, anti-inflammatory agent. But, you know, people have mixed feelings about using it, so it becomes more of a cultural and, and um, kind of a, a individual idea of if you want to use it or not. The, what is it about the whey protein that is – I didn't know that. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So um, just some of the milk proteins in, in – um, the structure of the way itself work to dampen post-exercise inflammation. 
They did a study about two years ago looking at protein intake and they matched protein sources from dairy, egg, and and vegetarian or vegan sources. And not only did the whey have the greatest bioavailability and um, increase the amount of leucine that was in the muscle, but it also had a very strong anti-inflammatory property. So it has to do with some of the immunoglobulins that are, are still in the whey protein itself. So it was a, an isolate. And so when people are looking at post-exercise inflammation and how do we dampen it, um, they get a bigger bang for their buck if they're using whey protein isolate post-exercise as their um, protein intake. That's awesome. Do you think um, outside of whey protein that and maybe yogurts, uh, that dairy, I've always felt, you know, outside of, I just don't do well with dairy, but I have felt that it's really inflammatory in general. Um, but is that just my own perception of it? If it's not whey or dairy, or if it's not whey or yogurt, I've always felt like it's a little bit more pro-inflammatory for people because of just, well, one, it's a sugar, but um, the way maybe it's processed in, in the United States specifically. Um, so your general mass processed milk, you know, the non-organic kind, I would be wary because you're not quite sure if it has the hormone residuals that does cause inflammation and some endocrine disruption. Um, but in general, it's, it's not pro-inflammatory for everyone. If you have a dairy sensitivity or genetic profile that um, makes you less able to digest the dairy proteins, then you're going to have issues with it. Um, so, you know, I've moved away from generalization to more personalized stuff. I'm getting a little bit more into the genetic aspects of, of how you respond to different exercise and different macronutrients. Um, because we are limited in time. So if we're in the gym and we're eating, we want to make sure that it works for us. Mm -hmm. And there's still that very broad idea of generalization that just doesn't work when people are trying to get healthy and fit. I love that you said that. It's so true. And I think people get so frustrated because they just want, you know, the meal plan and they just want the workout program and they want someone to tell them what to do. And I totally get it, but it's just so, it's so short-sighted, you know, when you think of where you want to go and your goals, it's like, if you could just dig a little deeper, you're going to get so much further. Um, <laughs> so it's so much further. So I, I yeah. think that's great that you said that. Um, I I had a, and you can obviously like skip this question if you want, but I always ask my um, guests, like my bee nerdy guests about their supplement protocol. If you like supplements that you can't live without, you don't, you know, you don't have to give brands, but things that you have just really felt like are something that you are, you are a big believer in. Yeah. Um, so magnesium and vitamin D. Yeah, awesome. I think we. Uh, and oh, go ahead. I mean, we know so many properties about vitamin D, but it also helps a lot with like depression and and uh, kind of your brain fog and that kind of stuff. But it helps with you know, like muscle reparation and all that kind of stuff. The magnesium is is coming out more and more um, as anti-inflammatory and good for muscle contraction and sleep and that kind of stuff. And um, I am allergic to almost every non-steroidal out there. So if I have surgery, I can't have any painkillers. So I'm always looking for things to, you know, help with injury and pain that is more of a natural source, not only for myself, but then I can tell athletes about it too because I'd rather people not be using pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Oh, man. Have you used um, white willow bark? 
Yeah. I, yeah. I'm obsessed with white whale bark. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> um, and of course, I mean, obviously the Arnica, but white whale bark has been my, my go-to anti-inflammatory. Yeah. For sure. It's great in the PMS too. So you take white willow bark um, and omega-3 fatty acids with magnesium and it counters the prostaglandin response that estrogen upregulates. So then you have less bloating and pain and your actual period is not so crampy and, and, and hard to deal with. Mm, that's so good for so many people. Do you think it's good to start doing like the 10 day before? So as you start to shift uh, 10, to, 10 day before? <laughs> Well, I usually say about the five to seven days before, because that's when your estrogen and progesterone are at their highest. Mm. Cool. I love it. Um, and then I have um, one more question for you. And it's a <laughs> this is such a weird question. You're going to get to know me so well. But um, I would love to know if you have a spirit animal. A spirit animal. <laughs> um, it's not a weird question. Uh, not really spirit animal, but fairies. Is that is that weird to say? No, that's good. I'm part dragon, so that works perfectly. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, fairies. fairies and butterflies are huge in in our family. So I guess butterflies really aren't an animal either. Um, True, but yeah, I've, I've looked at all of them, and I feel like I go through different waves like what is empowering and what is, is strong. And right now I'm sitting with butterflies and fairies. I love that. That's a great answer. You're my first fairy on the show. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, I just, I really appreciate you letting me, you know, bombard you with some questions and get to get to talk about this stuff. Cause I know this is going to help so many people. Uh, you, you know, obviously your book roar R O A R it's fantastic. And then, where else can they find you and connect with you? Um, so Dr. Stacy Sims Facebook page. I'm Summer Stack on Twitter. And I'm on the University of Waikato um, staff pages, which keeps an update of, of what I'm doing research-wise and research projects that are going on um, and direct contact with me here. That's awesome. Do you have anything exciting that you are currently working on? Some stuff like you're really got stuff so on. many things going on. Like what? <laughs> so we're doing a low energy availability study across different sports. So we're looking at the red S between individual and team sports and power sports and endurance sports to see what kind of influences are there from a cultural and a coaching and a, um, a food intake and availability standpoint. Um, doing some genetic stuff because most of the, like, you know, you have like DNA fit and fitness genes and all those upcoming. The um, 23andMe yeah. is one of them, right? Yeah. Yep. But again, there's only nine SNPs that have included women. So most of the information oh. that you're getting are, is from European white men. So oh. I'm doing more observational, like gathering data not only with the nine SNPs to influence women in their training, but also gathering more observational to try to expand the actual genetic availability of SNPs. Um, and then just doing more heat research as well, which is why I'm sitting in the environmental chamber. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, that's so awesome. I can't wait to keep keeping up with you and seeing what you put out because it's just you are the ultimate nerd icon and you're empowering women. And I can't speak more highly of you and what you're 
doing. So I'm just honored that you were on the show today. This is so cool. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yay. Okay, guys, I'll see you next Wednesday.